Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this Wednesday evening? David, I'm well. It's been exciting. We had a huge whiteout ice storm, uh, temporary blizzard yesterday, which was very exciting. Lovely to see the snow crystals on all the cacti around uh and i've set up my death valley research uh into the california condors that we're seeing uh, across the mountains which is kind of an interesting analog to uh well you know people from california moving to nevada fleeing california and also of course uh you know the immigration issues we're seeing lots of of different kinds of of wildlife moving north uh, on many levels. There were many sort of birds that I was seeing uh, at my old place that um, I found out come from uh, central Mexico and in some cases really uh, Central America, you know, heading down to South America. And of course there's the human immigration sort of issues. And in other just good news, briefly, I am starting to get some interest in my uh, musical endeavors. Uh, I'm scoring uh, a brief segment of an indie film. Ooh. And, uh, All right. Yeah, it, it's kind of cool. It's a it's an interesting I don't have the final uh, rushes uh, to work with, but I have a pretty good indication from some of the dailies. It's a kind of. Um, it's that sneaking around the building sort of stuff. A little bit on that note, a little bit, <laughs> but it has a kind of elegiac looking out. It's, uh-huh. it's these uh, two lovers uh, who are in a, um, a ruined sort of motel by the side of the road, which is kind of, I mean, that's about as close to my heart as you can get. Um, so I get to do a few different things with that and I'm trying that on. So that's great news. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, I'm super glad to hear that. That's, uh, that's really good news and you do elegiac very well. So I'm sure that it'll, I'm sure it'll, I'm sure it'll hit over here. We've had very strange weather. We've had a lot of rain, uh, some hail. We had a new. We have a new house being built at a remarkable speed across the street. There's been an empty lot there for about nine months, and the fellows got to work on it about three weeks ago, and they're digging cable now. The house is really essentially yeah. It came up quick. Those guys worked morning to night, straight through. They had the frame up within a week. Yeah, they had the the insulation and everything up at second week. And now they've they've got everything except for the cosmetic stuff pretty much ready. The roof is on it. Um, but so we had an excavator uh, in the in the strip beyond our fence. We have a chain link fence. So Gus and I spent about an hour outside watching the excavator and cool. he, he couldn't get enough of it. Yeah, and, um, yeah. it's it's really ter- my uh, parenting has really turned a corner because he woke up one morning about three days ago in a jolly little mood giggling and happy and running around and playing with toys and he's been he's not i wouldn't say he's he's always been much of a morning person takes after his mother in that respect but 
<laughs> Man, he woke up and he was, and he has just been, he's been listening to me when I tell him no, instead of yelling at me. Uh, and I, I think it's all directly coinciding with his ability. So he has the ability now to count to 10 and he can do ABC and then recognize about half the letters. He can say, uh, oh no, he can say, please, he can say, I'm hungry. He can say all these little things. I think his good mood is directly corresponding with some in the middle of the night, some brain level up that he had where he can suddenly say words. And That's beautiful, beautiful idea. Yeah. And I think I was talking to my friend Ed Rathke about this, and he he has kids who are similar in age to mine. His son is about a year and a half older, and his son hit the hit this point at about the same time. Gus is uh, twenty, almost twenty one months old, and he said that you know when you first start out as a kid, you're seeing all of these colors and shapes, and you can't put them into a coherent framework. So it's almost like you're on a constant acid trip. You're just yeah. experiencing pure. And then mysteriously, well, I don't think it's mysterious to us, but mysteriously, as soon as you start to get a handle on language, you begin to organize the world and it becomes a little bit less overwhelming. And I'm witnessing that in real time. It's fascinating to watch because he's in a good mood at all times. He's not... I wouldn't say that he was, you know, angry or antisocial or anything like that, but very touchy. He's been very touchy for the past three or four months. If something offends him, if he can't, you know, line up his water bottles the way that I've shown you, if they don't look just right, he'll knock all of that off of the off of the fireplace and start over again. Yeah. And he has a much more, you know, Kesara Sarah type attitude about about life right now and he's just he's laughing and giggling i think he's telling me jokes because he'll say something and then laugh and i'll laugh back <laughs> even though i can't really but he'll say i'm okay yeah cool yeah that was great buddy well that has a syntax to it doesn't it i mean absolutely it does Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's that's that's a really beautiful statement of being able to watch syntactical architecture taking form and it's an interesting sort of analog to to the house being built uh, across you yeah. know the street i mean it's it's very parallel in mm-hmm. that way and i wish we could really hang on to the beautiful possibilities of those that early, early uh, manifestations of real language uh, penetration into the mind that that's creative and generative and also a really good buzz before, you know, some of those calcification programs that over framing steps in, which, you know, I don't think that happens with everyone. I think that that when you see it, is clearly in someone that really shows the possibilities of maybe more fluidity of evolution that way. Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm. exciting. Another funny thing is that he's watching this show right now in the other room, but at night we turn on a show called Bluey, 
which is an Australian production about a family of dogs that get into various hijinks. The episodes are about 10 minutes long, so they're really good bite-sized chunks for him to watch. So he says no a lot. I'll say, do you want beans? And he'll say, no. Do you want applesauce? He'll say, no. I say, do you want ice cream? <laughs> and he'll, he'll do that, which he doesn't quite have yes down, but he's got the, the, the sign language for it. Uh, but what's funny about it is because he watches this show, he says no like an Australian. So instead of saying no, he says like, no. <laughs> <laughs> It's like they've got that that very strange Australian accent where they they sort of seem to have an R on the end of their nose. It's yeah. like it's kind of a nar. Um, but uh so I think that's cute. I'm and I'm just I'm super excited from my perspective because well, you know, you take one thing away and then another thing gets added. So while he might not be throwing as many fits and temper tantrums and having what Rios and I call big emotions anymore he uh he doesn't so much like when i talk on the phone to friends during the day which used to be something i would do to get me through to hear an adult voice on the other end of the line and talk about you know how's it going if i'm talking on the phone he's there going going because i want attention dad i want attention i want attention i want attention so i've had to say to friends like look i gotta go because uh he was perfectly fine playing with his trains a few minutes ago, but he, he, he starts noticing, which is a strange thing to notice. I've got these earbuds in, this is how I talk on the phone as well, but he, he seems to understand the broad concept, if not specifically what I'm doing in his mind, I might be talking to myself and maybe he's trying to rescue me from insanity. He's like, Oh God, I got to talk to dad. Cause he keeps He's having yeah. this schizo- schizophrenic conversation with himself, but regardless, it's fascinating that he understands at any level what's going on when I'm doing that. Well, this is what we're talking about with the deep syntax, the deep grammars of perception. They're they're yeah. far below the levels of language in a pure sense. They're language in that bigger sense of expectation and prediction. What's yeah what's contextually normal what's going on you know that's the question we're always still you know trying to work out it's at his stage he just doesn't have that body of knowledge and frames systems nested systems of framing to either count on or to be constrained by Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so interesting Very very interesting it's very interesting speaking of interesting do you have a band and an aphorism for us? I do. I do. <laughs> okay. I knew you did. The band started off with, they, they got counts, they got talked out of it by significant others. Their first name was the minor attractive persons. Not, a, you know, attractive, <laughs> but attractive. Because they were trying uh-huh. to plan it because they they don't think they're very attractive. Their pitches too to the ordinary people and they're kind of an anti-influencer band Mm -hmm. their whole thing is now we look like hell and probably you do too but it's okay Mm -hmm. we're going to carry on but minor attractive persons was too close to minor attractor persons and (laughs) you know they just it was just a little bit contentious and they're also a little bit more uh 
more pretentious. They dropped out of, of RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design. They're conscious of a sort of the old new wave past of talking heads and various art bands. So they settled on the name Shlomo, S-C-H-L-O-M-O, which for trivia people is Sigmund Freud's never used middle name. Mm. Interesting. There is, in fact, a very elegiac uh, producer of ambient music named Shlomo. Is it? Oh, I must check out. I -hmm. like your music choices uh, and and recommendations, by the way. So never stop giving me them. I Mm -hmm. I always do check them out. But I like Shlomo, sort of (laughs) sounding like a mode. You know, it's like a weird time signature you never get to. And it also sounds like schlappen, you know, a schmo. Yeah, good, good Hebrew words. Yeah, yeah. And and so their thing is... uh, well, they're kind of their commentaries on really society is a parenting disaster. Uh, their first album is called Fear Flowers Now, and is a it's a it's again a concept album linked by a main song, but it looks at uh, ten uh, young people who all have various anxiety, depression, trigger issues. And each each song is a profile of them. But the master song, so to speak, is the child is parent to the person, not father to the man. And I actually have that going through my head with the lead vocalist kind of having a, a... a weird cross between Iggy Pop and the Lollipop Guild in The Wizard of Oz. You know, the child is parent to the person, you know, that kind of thing. Not, Not father, father to, the, to man. the man. You know, we can hear it. Um, at least a... with that, we get alliteration still. It sounds stupid, parent to the person, but that's where we're at now. Oh, I think? get it. I get it. I liked it on a strictly harmonic resonance level but i was about to to ask you about that about what that means but i i get it now it's uh yeah yeah it, i get it it's better than a lot of politically correct language it it gives us some alliteration it gives us sort of you know it, it's kind of pleasant to say but i can't now think of that without hearing this imaginary voice you know parent to that person you know kind of like <laughs> a megaphone sort of voice mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, kind of like uh, early 90s butthole surfers kind of thing. Yeah, that kind of vibe. That's actually mm-hmm. really good. That's who I, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, that's, they're a good, good association here. Mm-hmm. So that's my band. And here's my, my aphorism's a little bit dark. All right. And I'll tell you why. Because I have been... Uh, I don't know, I've been paying a lot of attention to ads lately for, and we're going to get into the whole sort of Super Bowl talk, but there's one uh, ad campaign for Cadillac that just drives me nuts. And I have nothing against Cadillac. <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah, I, I. it's this woman's voice, and she thinks she's like the Wicked Witch of Winter. She goes, this winter, you know, it's everything's mysterious. <laughs> and I just I heard that and I something else triggered 
And so this isn't as dark really as it sounds. It's it was me just being mad at the the wicked witch of winter, talking about the winter sun. Mm-hmm. Introduce just fractionally more psychopathology into the species, and we would be extinct in a matter of days. That's a fact. You know, it that is a fact. It it and that's the ingredient. I think we look at, you know, I don't know, these big sort of macro, we think they're macro things like climate change or pandemics, things that are happening to us without, and then we have a question of like, well, what kind of involvement did we have in that, you know, super virus released from that top secret lab? Oh, no, that was just something that happened. But if we think of psychopathology, the way that AI systems might think of them and i think are thinking about them in very very neutral abstracted terms but nonetheless that doesn't you know reduce the the consequences or or the the seriousness of them at all but yeah just a fraction more psychopathology and it's really alarming how balanced society is for as crazy as it might seem from the news it does find a kind of homeostasis that keeps yes. the whole thing from, from blowing up. And I yes. think that that's, I think it's remarkable. You could even look at it in terms of the, uh, the disaster that happened in East Palestine, Ohio this week with the vinyl chloride explosion that killed all the fish and essentially right. made the town unlivable for the foreseeable future. They called it a, a mini Chernobyl, which I thought was a hilariously 2023 thing to call an environmental disaster of that magnitude. It's like a mini Chernobyl, mini, cute. Uh, but you see something like that happen. And my first reaction after the the normal ones, like horror and disgust and murderous rage at the undoubted you know, suits who are responsible for this, somebody... This wasn't like the incident in uh, East Texas a few days later where somebody played chicken with a train and derailed it. This was some kind of negligence that caused it to happen. But the my, my point is, the thought that you have after that is how is this not happening on a weekly basis? You know, how how do the trains run on time so well? You know, because we notice when something like this happens which is bad, something about a, a half of, uh, let's, I think it was a 200, potentially up to 250 million gallons of vinyl chloride that exploded. Big, Jesus. big disaster. Yeah. yeah. But, but you get my point, which is I that do. how, how do the planes stay in the air? We saw, did I, you see that news story about in Austin, yeah. how the, the planes almost landed on top of each other? Well, we've uh, had several of those of light and, and I, I suppose the negative Eeyore people of the world will go, well, we're going to see a lot more of that. And mm-hmm. yeah, that probably is true. But I think what you're saying is a really, really important point about appreciating the balance, the resilience, the reasonableness of people right. that yeah. keeps the show on the road. I mean, absolutely it does. And I, th- you know, it's kind of like we should maybe give ourselves a little bit more credit sometimes than all of the fear and freak out that, that we tend to. 
Uh, hey, we need PVC. We got to have PVC. Yeah, we do. It's, it's, well, it's important. Vinyl chloride might not be nice, but polyvinyl chloride is a vital ingredient in infrastructure. So you got to have it. And you so be their voiceover. You're so much better than <laughs> this winter. You know, <laughs> this winter. Hey, listen. Natural. I could do that for Exxon Mobil. I could do that for I could do that for any any natural disaster. I'll come out and say, look, I know that a chunk of the Indian Ocean is now unsaleable. All the animals in it are dead because you know something the size of Australia erupted in there. But think about how worse it could have been. I think- <laughs> <laughs> I, look, I think you've got a real voice of me. <laughs> Uh, you could be a, a yeah a voice talent. You should you should pitch that when you're when you're in a good mood and mm-hmm. and optimistic yourself and you are you know tonight. I I, I think that would be yeah look it would open up many doors because you sound very reasonable. I'm finding that my mood and this will probably bear out for the next 16 years. My mood is very dependent on my son's mood. Yeah. If he's in a good mood, I'm in a good mood. Um, I do want to get into our Super Bowl talk, but before we do that, could you please bestow upon me my imaginative challenge for the evening? Yes, I will. And its working title is A Pretty How Town, which is one of my favorite E.E. Cummings lines and poems, A Pretty How Town. It's uh, picking up on uh, that railroad disaster. Uh, the protagonist is named Jiminy Geranium. He's an outsider artist and master model maker. He's also a loon and a bit religious. And you have those two issues to flesh out as you choose. Lives alone in a kind of shack, corrugated iron barn at the edge of a southern town named Pig Ear, Georgia. Mm. And one day there is a rail crisis. Not quite the crash that we saw in Ohio, but something significant. And out of that wreckage, he finds a very weird ultra-modern barrel which he feels compelled to take back to his studio barn shack residence. Inside is a very peculiar kind of goo, which has a very unexpected characteristic of taking shape as he wills it to. He finds that his model making capabilities, he was working on his own version of Pig Ear, Georgia, the town, which was quite an amazing achievement from an outsider artist with scavenged materials anyway. But the new goo opens up all sorts of new possibilities. And the model begins to take on a depth and precision that is quite remarkable. It also begins, or something, maybe perhaps it's not the goo, perhaps it's not the new enriched and 
detailed, deepened model version of pig ear. But it's hard to think that they aren't having some influence. But Jiminy Geranium's personal psychology changes. The model begins to change the model maker. And in very short order, something like the time-lapse experience of you watching that house being built across from you, his outsider art installation begins to influence events and people in the real town. So your challenge is to flesh that story out. You just said a very important word that unlocked it. I'll develop it as I go. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, so I am not anti-sports. I think sports are great. When I lived in El Paso amongst my Mexican relatives, it was common on Fridays during football season for everyone to put on Cowboys jerseys, including me. I had a Tony Romo, if I remember correctly, and get together and watch the game. Eventually, people got a bit sick of the Cowboys losing as much as they did, and some folks started looking for new teams, but we still got together for the games and drank beer and ate food. It was a great experience. I think football is incredibly fascinating. I think it's an exciting sport. I think the spectacle of the Super Bowl is amazing. But if I don't have anyone in my nearby physical vicinity with whom to bet and drink and carouse, I just, I don't turn it on. So I didn't see it. I didn't watch the Super Bowl. But you sent me a several paragraph long, and I think I've been thinking about it all day, fascinating text about your time watching the Super Bowl, which you did a sort of, you did a a bar crawl, kind of hop from place to place. Yeah. So you have multiple angles to come at this from. And I thought it would be fun for this episode to do a kind of cultural anthropological debrief and exploration of this most recent Super Bowl, which, by the way, I predicted correctly, almost to the exact score. So I don't have a gambling issue, but if I had been a gambler, I would have made a lot of money off of this, <laughs> off of right. this particular, uh, you know, I figured I knew it was going to be by three. I just had a feeling it was going to be by three and I picked the chiefs arbitrarily. So if I'd picked the chiefs by three, pretty decent purse at the end of the night. But anyway, so I'll hand it off to you. Uh, I'm interested to be taken on a journey as though I was there uh, hanging out with you and your buds as you watch the Super Bowl. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you. It, it was an anthropology field trip. Absolutely. And that was very intentional on my part. I tactically chose three different uh, bars. One of them, I think you could call, which is, you know, always a, 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 a sports bar. One is a biker bar, sort of down and, and dirty, strange, lots of very peculiar people, very uh, mixed race across the day, uh, mixed uh, on many levels. I would say one thing about that, that at only one bar, was it really mixed in age? 
I really didn't see the younger demographic as in my Gen Z students having that much interest in it. I think they tend to to watch in in different locales, those that do. I think that the the event is struggling with uh, a younger demographic, which is interesting because both these teams, the Eagles and the Chiefs, have a lot of young players, particularly their two key quarterbacks, Jalen Hurts and Patrick Mahomes. First Super Bowl with two black QBs. That's that got a lot of attention. Is that right? Oh my yeah. goodness! It's it's with such a predominantly black sport. That's really interesting. Are quarterbacks typically white? Is that a they have been? Oh, that's been a huge, <laughs> huge uh, division of labor question within the NFL. Absolutely, it, it was a. It's been. I mean, the the color line has been broken for some time, and there have been some outstanding. Uh, Ex, uh, you know, black uh, quarterbacks, and we're seeing another generation of them. Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts, I think, probably just raised the bar significantly. Uh, but there are quite a few. Uh, Dak Prescott is, you know, uh, for the Cowboys. Uh, Lamar Jackson. There, there are. It's not as unusual. It's not unusual anymore. But it, it used to be absolutely. You could, you would, you know, often assume that a running back or a wide receiver would be black. The major uh, defensive players often, uh, but you could assume like a white center, a big white dude from the Midwest would be the center, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. there'd be a white quarterback. And there were a lot of complicated reasons, you know, thinking, well, the quarterback has to do more thinking, and you know, <laughs> oh, so that was really, you know, you know. Blacks are great athletes, everyone was quite happy to admit uh, and and really celebrate, but not sure about all that play calling. Of course, well, now, of course, the quarterbacks aren't calling the plays. You know, they're getting plays in the helmet. They have, you know, it's there's there are there are coordinators for offense and defense. There's sub coaches and computer systems supporting them and all this sort of stuff. Who, so by the way, are often black, too. The, the Those people are black as well. Well, it's all of that is is really a, a big thing. And mm-hmm. I think this Super Bowl was was backgrounded against that because it wasn't so long ago that Colin Kaepernick, a, 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 in my view, a, a very second rate quarterback. Doesn't that matter seems to be the opinion. That seems to be the, the, the consensus from from non-political sports fans, friends of mine, is yeah. that he's kind of a. He's he's kind of a bum a little bit, but you know, well, all right. He he had a reputation going back to because he played in uh, uh, college ball in Nevada. He had a reputation as not being well liked for a lot of reasons. Way no before, kidding. Way before <laughs> the kneeling sort of issue, and he wasn't a starting quarterback star. So I think a lot of people just simply didn't buy his political stance about kneeling for the national anthem because he wasn't a big enough name. And he kind of became a big name after that in a way that, I mean, no one, kids weren't wanting to be Colin Kaepernick before then, you know, Mm -hmm. because he was a star. And so people didn't feel like he was accomplished enough and he wasn't a lot. He just apparently isn't a likable guy. And a lot of people say that, but 
we do have the the NFL kind of like Disney desperately trying to be woke and there are all these little signs around like at the so end of the end zone you know end racism you know these little things that really just, yeah in the and, super bowl that had end racism in the end zone well they have them at a lot of the, the most of the fields and games so it's not like they are central points of attention but over the course of a game you're going to get flashes of wow it. So it oh. seems like this subliminal sort of thing, yeah. you know, and yeah. if you saw it, like if we were, you, you would notice it and you'd get annoyed because you think, yeah. oh, <laughs> oh, come on. We don't want these little sub messages, you know, yeah. it's and it trivializes the whole thing. And it's so bizarre because you do have predominantly if not exclusively still white owners up in the sky boxes with all the you know their celebrity friends and uh, oh there was a great shot that i loved of elon musk and rupert murdoch eating chicken wings together and it was just uh, <laughs> and uh, racism and uh, racism so there's all of that and then it, it jumped off to a, a really just unequivocally sort of confrontational start for, in my view, but I think everybody's, with the singing of the Black National Anthem. I saw this. What the hell is going on with this? It It, it is slipping in very, very regularly now. And everybody at the first bar was in was really, really against this. And I did several interviews. <laughs> You know, and a couple of black people said, look, I, I, you know, what am I supposed to say here? I I get it, but something's wrong with it. That's what one dude said. He said, just something is just not. And there's pressure upon African-Americans, particularly the more sports fan they are. And I was, you know, not not everybody around me was sports. And a lot of them are there for just the fellowship and the, you know, the. They're like me. Yeah. Yeah, the buzz of it, the camaraderie and the whole thing. But that was a very strange kickoff note that I think even well done, and there was no question that it was well done. There's no question that there's, I don't think there's a problem with the the, the song as an artifact of popular culture. But I do think the context of a Black national anthem is is not working and i wonder here's a point that did emerge and i wonder if this doesn't resonate a lot with where you're living and and you're the you're where you've been living the hispanic latino community in las vegas is becoming more and more active there is a very strong middle class business owning conservative base, not necessarily politically conservative. I think a lot of them are still voting Democrats, but they are a very solid community structure here. And no one is going, oh, they're gangsters or cartels. They, you don't talk about that. These people are family people. They may be good Catholics, but they're very good property owners, business, small business owners. They're the bedrock of a very big section of my city. And they have some issues with a black national anthem in a city that has a Spanish name in a city that has canceled 
uh, Spanish studies informally in the school system. And you'd argue, well, it should be doubled, right? Uh, so there, there were some problems with that. And, but then the setup and whoever was the, the planner of things knew this obviously was going to happen. Chris Stapleton, who's a country uh, singer who I'm not that familiar with, came on to do the national anthem. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were going, well, this is it right here. Mm-hmm. You know, they set this up. This is the black national anthem versus now the white national anthem. I hate this so much. I can't even put into words how much I hate what you're saying right now. But it's hard <laughs> to avoid the binary, right? I mean, you've got a black woman I know. singing what is announced as the black national anthem. And then you get uh, a white haired, white, long haired dude, country singer doing the national, you know, the traditional national, the, the, yeah, exactly, banner. exactly. I think uh, a few things about what you said sparks some interest. So first of all, I think that is an awful idea. I think there is a debate to be had. If you want to change the national anthem in general, I think yep. that's a huge conversation, but I think it's one we should have. No, we are a country, black, white, whoever, we have one national anthem. There's something so symbolically intense about dividing our national anthems by race i cannot believe that that is a thing that's happening i can't i can't imagine if somebody told me that they thought that that was a good idea i would look at them like an alien like they were one of those balloons that got shot down by an f-22 i I wouldn't know what to say i'm i'm (laughs) maybe for the first time in lost explorers history I'm offended by a concept and it's this concept of splitting the national anthem by race. And what you said about Latinos is, is, is right on point. I think that Spanish should be mandatory in school. I think Americans need to learn Spanish. I think that Latinos, they're consumers, they're Americans, as far as I'm concerned. But if there was to be any racial division in the country to where you needed to split the national anthem, it would obviously to me be between the whites and Latinos, but now whites are getting lumped in with Latinos and by, by Latinos wishes, right. A lot of Latinos call themselves white Latinos instead of, you know, because there's colorism that's involved in all that. Yes. Um, But this idea, I'm sick to death of this nonsense and it's from the top down. You mentioned very saliently Elon Musk and Rupert Murdoch eating chicken wings together (laughs) as the Black National Anthem is going on. This is being fed to us, and it is so sinister. It's sinister. It is sinister. Doing that, people will see that and say, uh, I could imagine a person watching that and saying, oh, how lovely. They have their own national anthem does that mean that they have their own country are we two different countries now well isn't that uh, just a hell of a way to kick off so to speak this major sporting event one of the events we have that's you know that really does draw america together i mean this isn't the nascar finals for instance exactly and you know i think we're i mean the world series used to do it uh, the NBA finals doesn't do it. I think that slants, you know, 
a little bit more uh, to the black demographic. I don't know. I mean, I, it gets a lot of attention, but still, the Super Bowl really has the potential to draw people together. And the ironic thing was this guy, Chris Stapleton, who I, 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 I'm a little bit familiar with his stuff, but my God, did he let it rip. It was just a sensational performance. And most people, I think, were just incredibly moved and thought, because the Star Spangled Banner is a difficult anthem to sing. And I'm with you 100%. I think we could be open to look at maybe a new national anthem, but one national anthem, because that's what the that's what it means. You don't have multiple national anthems. Nobody likes that idea. Your response to this issue is exactly in line with everyone I spoke to. And I made a point of speaking to like 30 or 40 very different people. I asked them what they thought. It is in normal America is not in favor of this division of, of things. Not at all. There are people who would look at uh yeah, one new national anthem. Yeah, maybe we do need that. Uh, and maybe one that's easier to sing. But it was strange when this country singer who was, you know, given the, the gig, did an absolutely glorious job. To me, it was up there with uh, Mahalia Jackson and possibly Marvin Gaye's delivery uh at uh, an NBA uh, championship game uh, and a Super Bowl. I mean, the, it was on, it was one of the most memorable uh, renditions I've ever, ever experienced. But it was so weird to introduce that level of divisiveness at this clearly interracial celebration of unity. I mean, that's what had assembled at sports bar ground corner bar level was America coming together. And the ability to have quite spirited uh, arguments in a funny, friendly way. Yeah, that's what sports are really good for. They say that they're an analog for war, but I disagree they're an analog for the kind of conversations that we've been having on Twitter, where we want to fight about transgenderism and racism and things like that. The hell with all that. Put two people together in a room and have them argue about the merits of respective quarterbacks and coaches and trade decisions. My friends who are really into sports are some of the most well-adjusted people that I know. They're maniacs when they're watching a game yeah and they're fighting with each other but it's it's play it's play fighting how can you have energy to fight about cognitive uh no not cog uh, critical race theory i get cbt and crt mixed up all the time <laughs> not even <laughs> to mention like you know uh you know crt as in cathode raid two televisions you know so the the little uh, anagrams all get mixed up, but um, they they can't they don't have the energy to fight about that kind of thing when they've 
they've blown it on arguing about, you know, is LeBron the greatest of all time? I think so. I'm not a sports guy, but from my outsider perspective, he certainly seems to be. Uh, so anyway, yeah, no, it's not an analog for war. It's an analog for th- this kind of trickle down fighting proxy war that we're all supposed to be fighting at all times, like getting really into sports or something that you can channel that energy into, I think is, is the smarter move. Well, absolutely. And I think it is something that people do quite naturally in, in community groups. And I think it's something that our corporate uh, forces, our political forces, and certainly our media forces are absolutely not, it's not just a question of failing to recognize. I think they're working directly in opposition to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think they're agitating. They're agitating. They are. They are. And there's going to be, this is where the groundswell (laughs) begins because people are able to organize quite spirited interactions with each other that are directed towards the larger social function of celebration and being together in a way that social media completely is an argument against you know it's just there was there was really nothing but good feeling and even the most outraged you know particularly at referee calls or something i mean there was a lot of emotion there was a lot of stuff that could have boiled over into some sort of hideous conflict which it so often does, as we've discussed in a tw- in the Twitterverse, but at, at in in flesh and blood barstool terms, I think people really organize themselves really quite well. Mm-hmm. I, I saw one incident uh, that had come in from outside and then was sort of swept away because obviously some uh, a, nothing to do with the game, mm-hmm. really private family interpersonal group things out of i don't know maybe five or six hundred people that that i was you know totally around over the course of the day people shout they yell they they say no they say fuck you know they all this kind of and it's loud but man is it fun it's fun to see people get into like again they're taking out that aggression by yelling with their friends at a screen it's brilliant it's great. And going back to the level of language interpretation that Gus is feeling his way into, anyone could just monitor those scenes at the most abstract level. So no semantic understanding of English whatsoever. And you could tell that the tone was, the mood was good. Even, you know, some of the voice patterns, yeah, would get, there'd be tension, there'd be, but you could tell that people were having a good time, that this was not veering into some sort of, of dangerous terrain. And I, I would, I would watch the bartenders and, and there were a couple of, at uh, one place, there were a couple of these two chicks that uh, were really on top of the game and in the larger sense, I mean, and you could see. I mean, they're used to professionally being alert to trouble. 
you know, to problems mm-hmm. that might be, you know, arising. Somebody's with somebody's girlfriend or boyfriend or, you know, all that kind of stuff and alcohol, you know, uh, there's lots of reasons for, for trouble. Everybody was relaxed, but there was an absolutely united position against this imposed sense of division and wokeism that we are getting from the media, from the corporate world, from our politicians, and everything that the NFL as the big host corporate entity that they've done to try to accommodate and pander to these subset values, I think are rejected. I think that there are a lot of people I, I, yeah. I yeah, I talked to um, one uh, really interesting couple about oh somewhere between your age and mine, uh, and they said we're coming back to really being the fans that we were. We were very disappointed with what happened during COVID, but we've really gotten tired of the politicizing of this form of of entertainment that is one of of society's escapes from all that politicization you know and i think that's a very very deeply ingrained attitude and i was uh surprised and encouraged to see that working across racial lines and to some extent across class lines too Uh, I really think that there is a problem with this pandering to an idea of what progressivism is when part of the problem is not knowing the context in which to, to push that. It's not as a slogan at the end of a football field, you know, it's not in little inserts of things and it's certainly not in uh, as we said the i think the introduction of a separate national anthem so that was kind of an undercurrent of uh which i thought was a strange counterpoint to this incredibly competitive game that was really a celebration of of interracial uh communion and competition I mean, competition at a fierce level working harmoniously. I mean, what do people want? I, yeah, to me, I mean, that's inspiring. Yeah. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> so I uh, I love this country a lot. I'm not one of these. I mean, it's got its problems. What doesn't? But America is uniquely awesome. And football, and I'm saying this not as a football fan, but football is the first thing I think of when I think of America for that reason, it's ability to bring people together, whether the teams or the, uh, the audience and to kind of engage in a competition where we all agree that we're not going to kill ourselves, kill each other, I should say, but that we're going to talk shit and have fun. I mean, what's more American than that? I wonder where you think this goes. Where does the where does the NF is the NFL the NFL going woke is so strange because from what you've said, what I've observed, and from what common sense would probably tell most people, people don't want this kind of shit. So where's the where's the NFL going with this? Is this just a thing that they do now? 
Well, it's a really, really important question because I think in microcosm, it is a manageable way to look at the larger national political question. Because if the NFL as a corporate entity uh, worth, I can't remember how many billions it's it's monetized at, but it's a lot. And it, it has, you know, uh, it had visions of going in, uh, even more international. They've been playing one game every season in London. Uh, they are have a pretty strong uh, infrastructure uh, at, at the college, university, and down through the high school level, even with more parental concerns about the violence of the game and player injuries. There, there, there are threats. I think the SWOT analysis, you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats for the NFL are, are very intense. But if they don't listen to this fairly immediate call to step back from wokeism and to to repackage that at least and to frame some of the good things that are going on i think they're going to really lose market share and they're going to lose a deeper sense of brand loyalty and cultural connection which they still have at the moment and you could feel the presence of it, but it's very, very fragile. It's generationally and micro generationally fragile. You know, they could really they, they do not have the inroads into Gen Z's loyalty at all. So right. it is an aging demographic. If like that couple I spoke to, there are people who have not come back fully to the level of fandom because of the NFL's commitment to wokeism in fairly clumsy sort of ways. I think that needs to be said. It's not just the, the commitment to, uh, uh, to ideology. Some would reject that just full bore, but it's also the clunkiness of it. And you have a commissioner in Roger Goodell who is probably the archetypal white dude that everyone doesn't like. He looks the part. He's he he looks so unwoke. He looks so insincere. Even him just shaking hands, and he never just shakes hands with black players. He always feels the need to embrace them. Oh, he does. He he daps them up. He daps the black players up. The creepy seventh grade vice principal. You know that's Mm -hmm. who he is. (laughs) Somehow in this sixty four million dollar job. So I think that's a real crisis. If the NFL doesn't listen, they will lose some, not just money, not just revenue, but some of that deep mind share, heart share that Mm -hmm. they build up over time. And I don't know as a culture if we have anything to replace that with. We don't. No, there's nothing. I wonder why they couldn't just have uh, Cheryl Lee Ralph and Chris Stapleton sing the Star Spangled Banner banner together. This is what the youngest people that I was speaking to who were there, and it was really about your demographic, not too much younger, but that's what was, that was exactly the alternative, you know, a really practical, uh, and and actually that was uh, the, the code name for it. That's the practical girlfriend answer. That's what a lot of people said. Don't just bring two things together. You know, it's not either or bring it together. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. That's not the crazy girlfriend idea. That's the practical girlfriend idea, the down to earth person. And I think that makes perfect sense. That could have been, it could have been a really interesting duet. And musically, it might have worked as well. It wasn't as if the, those, those two styles, I mean, they're both professional singers. They could have, it could have melded that together. So might have been a huge hit, might have been number one on the billboard charts. Well, it might have just been a supersonic rocket to the top of the charts in terms of, you know, like everybody's saying, how amazing is this? The mixing of, you know, soul R&B with with, you know, country styling kind of what America is. Right. It's certainly it would have been a hit. It would have been huge music. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a really, you know, you can't even call it a great idea because it should be. A very basic idea. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, that's the way it should be thought of. But it would have been absolutely spot on as the way to to really capitalize on this great moment of some shared cultural collateral and and understanding and and depth of, of purpose beyond something of the game. And... So we start off with that as the introduction. And the game itself, I think, I know there were some very controversial uh, referee calls, particularly one at the end. But, of course, that's where, you know, a call is going to get a lot of attention is, is at, at the end of a close game, particularly if it seems to influence the, the final outcome, which, you know, it only does in retrospect. There were two really interesting counterpoints. One, the field, as in the turf, was an absolute mess. Players were slipping constantly. They were changing cleats. It was this ongoing deal of of adapting to this $800,000 to $2 million turf installation issue, you know, and that is the that is the the corporate model the corporate infrastructure made physical and real you know mm-hmm. flesh is grass is the mm-hmm. bible says mm-hmm. well they couldn't mm-hmm. get the grass right could they you know here are these heroic players who are some of the most graceful people we have even if they are 280 pounds they're struggling to move effectively and out of this absolute bog quagmire that the NFL and the Arizona Stadium, uh, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, State Farm Stadium. Yeah, we'll get the turf right, you idiots. One job. The two quarterbacks who are the heroes of this thing, I mean, we look to sports to provide great drama on the Greek drama scale, the, the, the scale of the African kingdoms. You know, the the scale of Chinese empires. Well, we had it. We had two young quarterbacks of extraordinary athleticism in a real shootout. But not only doing a, an immense performance of team leadership, but being heroic stars themselves. Jalen Hurts scored three touchdowns running as a quarterback. I mean, talk about a never-say-die effort. Meanwhile, Patrick Mahomes was injured and was, you know, 
he was fortunate he was able to play. He gets injured again in the game and is still competing. So for all those people who say the value of sports is on the moral character building level, we look to these figures for models of heroism that we can take back to our daily work. You know, whether we're driving a a truck for FedEx or working, you know, on some sort of awful retail counter job, or maybe we're, you know, white collar workers, whatever. We can look to these figures for some inspiration. And here are the two hero stars of this, two black quarterbacks pitted in combat. And they delivered on that. They delivered on that while the turf was a mess and while these corporate bigwigs and and commentators are sort of on another program of division and ideology and trying desperately to kind of make a commercial point out of it. And then we get to the ads. And I think this is a, a great cultural studies topic for every everybody gets in on this. It becomes because we know seven million bucks for 30 seconds. Last episode, you were speaking about wanting to have a budget yourself. You know, if you only had a little bit of well, imagine seven million bucks for 30 seconds. That's what the spend is. Feels like that's um, how much I spend when I go to Target. Yeah. They, and this this was a, just an absolute treat for uh, fans of the Super Bowl ads. It wasn't so much that there were any real, real breakout sensations in, in my view, but I think there was an enormous, uh, very obvious division. This is kind of our theme about the Super Bowl, there was a division. And the division in the ads was between legacy, heritage, nostalgia, and some really dubious attempts to kind of be new. Mm. And I think the last two letters of new, as in ew, was a little bit where that went to. There was some Really, uh, I think pretty well done handlings of of um, the heritage nostalgia thing, uh, and you expect that at that uh, you know the Super Bowl you do. But one ad really caught my attention, and I think everyone should check it out. I've I've started to see this brand popping up on my uh, when I'm online a lot. They must be spending a fortune. Timu, T-E-M-U. Have you heard of them? No. Let me Google Timu. They are everywhere I turn. And it seems very odd. They're they're a clear Chinese. Yes. Like the spy balloons, David. (laughs) Like TikTok. I'm seeing here something that I recognize from your text. Shop like a billionaire. Oh, look, you've got (laughs) uh, everyone must see the ad as it was run in the Super Bowl, because not only is the ad significant in in and of itself, as in 
one view, the ad spend that I was looking, I, I counted at least nine appearances. So that's 63 million bucks right there. I must have missed some. And I can't believe my, you know, um, the locale of, of Vegas would have been that different from, from any other major market. That was a lot of, of rotation. They were getting in there all the time. It's founded recently, by the way. Sorry to interrupt, but it was founded oh, well, September 1st of 2022. This is a very recent company. Which is always a little bit suspicious unto itself. I am Came seeing nowhere. everywhere online. They have to have an enormous bankroll. In They're an not even a year bank. old. They're not even six months old at this point. They're barely six months old. And Timu, it, huh? It's it's not clear to me what they don't sell. I don't know where. I mean, the the the, the product list is just mind boggling. Some of it looks really cool, I have to say. But this ad did not seem cool to me. And I'll run it down. It it has a very very basic premise frame. It is a hip hop music video that draws on the same sort of architecture or syntax of Broadway musicals and even Busby Berkeley uh, choreography of the past. You know, giant crowd scenes and people d- dancing. It's just that's the fantasy sort of thing. Uh, and it's very, very basic, and it's very cheerful, extreme bright colors, no apparent uh, political message, except our protagonist is a mixed-race chick, late 20s, mid-20s, uh, very bright and boppy, pretty but not too pretty. Now, the deal is she dances through the streets giving everyone she sees something she's buying she's shopping for them so okay. three dudes mixed race they all get wigs that she wants so she's able to oh, okay. her imaginative will at i like this symbolism yeah this is good at, at press she's just shopping with her phone she goes oh dave yep. you know i i saw david mm-hmm. in that strange shirt on on twitter i'm <laughs> It's a good shirt. My mother got me that shirt. Oh, uh, for for listeners, I I <laughs> called David out on a shirt that I, that did concern me. He it looked like uh, he was you know maybe part of a trio in a a kids program from maybe the nineteen nineties, and mm-hmm. I look like I'm on Blues Clues. Uh, yeah, well. Yeah. Uh, Look, I I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. If 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 the shoe if the shoe no, I wasn't offended at all. If the shoe fits, I say wear it. It is what I call dad core. It's a dad core shirt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I I don't Hang I don't that, Hang I on. Don't, to it. I don't look sexy, but I'd still look handsome. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. All right. Okay. Well. <laughs> But I still think that if you were in the ad, she mm-hmm. might have given you a different shirt, <laughs> you know, and you just find you and and you'd give a, a wonderful laugh and great smile like you just did. And mm-hmm. and she'd be out bopping, you know, somewhere else. But the tagline that repeats and repeats is shop like a billionaire. Yeah. And 
I don't, it didn't take more than one showing of that. And as I said, it was in serious rotation. Uh, I, I, I counted nine uh, and I, I must've missed some. So that would have been a huge ad spend shop like a billionaire, no thought about credit debt, uh, no thought about where the, the materials come from. Where were the woke progressive sort of issues? They're not anywhere apparent. You put on some faces and mm-hmm. you get mindless consumerism as the message to a but bright they're there. But they're there. I would argue that the woke message is still there because wokeness is tied in intrinsically with neoliberalist capitalism. So I think the fact that this woman is going around and buying things for people, changing them through the power of her spending dollar is absolutely a woke concept, right? If if you don't like something, why don't you just push your, uh, your money up against it until it changes? I think I, I, I feel some woke undertones to that. Oh, well, there was a, uh, there was a group of bikers who, who go, uh, well, that's like the damn spending program, you know? <laughs> They're just, right. They're once again the bike the biker contingent <laughs> is is yeah. more on point than most of our talking heads on TV. It absolutely is. They absolutely did nail it. You've said a lot of interesting things uh, recently. I did want to jump back a few minutes when you were talking about the turf of the stadium. Just as a, a quick observation of how interesting that is, because when you think about war and how wars are won based on turf, you know, I'm thinking of the Soviets, you know, freezing out the Nazis. So it is it, like this idea of turf winning battles and being an actual adversary uh, within a fight, I think is is playing out in this particular Super Bowl where these characters are slipping and sliding and having to interact with their surroundings. I mean, it's how war works. It's how sports works. You know, if, if the field had been good, would the game have gone differently? Uh, Well, of course, almost certainly, but would it have swung it one way or the other? Interesting to think about. Well, it's hard to, it's hard to know. I mean, that, that really is, is on the level of pure speculation, but what you could say was I have never ever seen a game where the the turf was more involved was more present was more a factor in every single play and think about all those amazing thanksgiving games or late season games in played in you know cities like you know buffalo and cleveland yeah. with the snow or the green bay i Packers. always think those guys have to be cold as hell wearing what they're wearing. I mean, I know that they're, they're doing physical activity, but man, when they have to go to the sidelines, right. I mean, and, and that's so part of the game. I mean, I remember as a kid watching Thanksgiving games and the snow, like the Detroit versus the green Bay Packers, the snow on our old television, which was, you know, not anything fancy even then. And, you know, so far from what we have today, you couldn't even see the players sometimes. So if imagine the environment having that kind of influence in beautiful, sunny Arizona in 2023, 
the mm-hmm. turf being, you know, it was it was this weird undercurrent of here are these great athletes who are really being let down and undermined in a very tangible physical way by a slippery infrastructure. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm right there. I'm with them right now. I too am a talented player who's being undermined by a slippery infrastructure. Uh, do you know um, the artist Robert Longo? I he, do. Yeah, he's. Uh, he, I think he became. He, well, he did become a film director. But what I really know him for is a, a series of uh, drawings called "Men in the Cities," mm-hmm. and they're mm-hmm. quite beautiful, strange, you know, sort of frozen spastic pictures of mostly men. There are a couple of women. Kind of, you can't tell if they're stopped in dance. Or if they've been shot, or if they're, a, I was going to say if they're being shot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was. It, it really it's kind of uh, like a Sam a Sam Peck and Paul like you know kind of splayed out sort of thing. Yeah, it really broke him open as an artist, and I still think they're quite haunting. Well, if you imagine some of the 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 um, slow motion stop action shots of the football game there were many many times where these great players with so much agility and phenomenal balance were were caught in these very awkward positions that could have been potentially you know really uh injurious because of the turf and i kept seeing this you know men in the cities men on the field except it's not really a field it seems to be more of a you know some sort of quagmire you know that's fascinating i feel like they should lean into that and have uh uh, sinkholes and meteorites and different weather for different quarters i think that we should lean into aggressively uh antagonistic terrain and (laughs) i love that idea wouldn't that be a great basis for for video gaming to absolutely the anti you, you keep a basic uh, the syntax of football so it's it's John Madden football fan you know and but you add different layers of complexity and you as a player get to throw in more uh, diabolical traps and tricks depending on how you score so you get more mm-hmm. flexibility to influence the game the yeah. better you are you know yeah. I think yeah, that first is- first quarter it's going to be 105 degrees and humid so all your controls are going to be sluggish yeah. and you're going to have to, you're going to have to compensate for the fact that your players are dehydrated. And then the third, by the third quarter, it's full on monsoon season and the game doesn't stop. Right. But there's mud everywhere and you're slipping and sliding. So maybe you're, I don't even know how you would adjust for that. I'm no, I don't know enough about football to, to comment exactly. Well, they changed uh, many yeah. times some players did like four or five times which shows i mean the, the the subtext there is just how much damn equipment these these teams go through i mean mm-hmm. just think of the the laundry bill the new clothing bill the the new everything the new mouth guards i mean it's so product intensive it's insane mm-hmm. but i'll give you mentioning the video game idea uh gets to another uh, interesting counterpoint the eagles coach is if not the youngest head coach he's one of the youngest and there was also going back to the national anthem a very poignant 
moment during Chris Stapleton's rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. When the Eagles coach, the youngest coach, starts crying, he is just really moved. And it was a very powerful sort of cathartic thing for the whole uh, 500 or so people in that in the bar I was in at that time. He's up against Andy Reid, the coach of, of the Chiefs. I don't know if you know what he, he has a little sort of walrus mustache. He's 64 years old. He looks very out of shape. He is not the uh, <laughs> tough, hard, uh, professional sort of uh, military style coach at all. But he is known to be sort of a genius in terms of play calling. And he does more of his own play calling than his offense and defensive coordinators do. He's really, and they pulled some tricks out. They really, really did. And to see those two coaches up, up again, there are two different versions of kind of male leadership today that are really in an interesting uh, period of fluctuation, you know, I thought mm-hmm. that was another interesting sort of counterpoint going on. That is interesting. Yeah. I'm looking at this guy right now. He definitely, <laughs> he definitely has a look very unassuming as, yes. a, as a, as a strategic genius, but he actually might not look out of place though, as a civil war general uh, to go back to the war metaphor that we were no, talking I think about you could before. put him in co- in a uniform and he he would uh he'd be convincing yeah. take him out of a windbreaker you know mm-hmm. um and all this sort of you know pseudo sports gear it was very very interesting the 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 difference in the bar crowds were I mean, there were people wearing jerseys and one of the the uh, bartender gals who I think had the most spectacular rear end I've ever seen in a non-celebrity person. And she was doing that really properly with a little leather, leather skirt and fishnets. And she did have a jersey on. But we, if there was a class difference across the venues that I was in, the more prosperous, and none of these places was was on that upmarket level. I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to go to more ordinary places. But that's where all the pseudo sports clothing get in, you know? And I'm not talking just about jerseys, which people wear obviously for tribal, you know, reasons um, and to show, you know, fan support. But just this generic sports stuff that people are wearing everywhere. You know, you turn around and you see the, you know, old people. And I'm starting to sort of get concerned about it in my of trying to look the, you know, the sporty sort of part, you know, and you think, oh fuck, you know. And <laughs> I liked the the bikers, and there was a, there was an interesting group of lesbian bikers because they're not trying to do any of that stuff, you know. They're not trying to sort of you know wear all this, you know. And they're certain they're not trying to look young. They're not trying to look hip hop. They're not trying to look like, you know, athletes when they're not. They're just who they are. And that fashion division was another thing that was going on there. It was uh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh... 
It's kind of, uh, it's interesting because there is a cliche about you don't want to be the person who's wearing the band t-shirt to the concert. <laughs> right. That's not, that's not the case in football. In football, everybody, you look weird. At least I did when I would show up to one of these cowboy outings that I was talking about and I wasn't wearing a Cowboys jersey. Yeah. My, my family would say, you know, well, we got to get, somebody go get him one. Go find, go find him something to wear. Because he's he's showing up, you know, wearing a mindless self-indulgence or a, you know, dog fashion disco t-shirt and nobody wants to see, or a walking dead t-shirt. Nobody wants to see that. They want to see you, uh, you know, joining in, having having fun with all that kind of stuff. That I do like these. Such a great commercial, David. I just have to interject. That would be so perfect. And I love a woman like, you know, your mother, so to speak, mm-hmm. or, or uh, say an aunt, you know, in the, in the, in the ad, um, would someone please get him, you know, just, <laughs> you know, that would be a love and that would harmonize with the sense of heritage and family connection mm-hmm. and group thing in a way that is a lot friendlier than the group thing that we've been talking about in, in a few earlier episodes, the social media conformity. It is a conformity message, but it's a little bit more innocent and it's fun. And when thinking of the, the shirt that, that I'm joking you about, mm-hmm. I can just see you walking with that on and, you know, a, a woman character in the family could go, would someone please get him, you know? Just get him a shirt. Yeah, yeah. Put yeah, put a jersey on him. I think that you brought up a really important lost explorers point because we we so often talk about nonconformity and movement away from a mainstream narrative. And I don't think that that's uh representative of what we think at all. I think we I mean, I think that we've said through our discussions about ritual, manhood. Uh, that we genuinely do believe that a kind of tribal event, a conformity of tribalism is what's most important. And the fact that it's missing throughout most of society leads to most of the, the, the worst aspects that we have to deal with these days. Like, I can't help but see, you know, this kind of just gross, animalistic, piggish insertion of woke politics into football as being this titanic, symbolic God battle that's going on right now. Because if there's one institution left that I think gets everything that you and I talk about right, it's football. You've got You've got the team, you've got the community, you've got the passionate discussion about minutia that doesn't really matter, none of which ideally, occasionally, but not ideally, ends in violence. It's just the idea of, I I, I hate to keep coming back to it, I'm sorry that I did, but again, this idea of the different anthems and the end racism in the end zone there's so much more going on with this game that's interesting. Like the turf was the actual playing field good for the players. These different coaches, one's the youngest in history. The, the other one is this walrus who's a genius. From a story perspective, the game itself is interesting sans race. But Absolutely. 
that that introduction of race into it at the very beginning, I really think sours it for me and raises a very important question, which is, are we going to do this? Is this what we're going to do? Because I don't think we need to do this. I really, I know this sounds like hyperbole, but I'm 100% serious. I, I really feel like this is a kind of beachhead attack on America. I don't think that's overstated at all, because I think you, if you if you look at it, trying to get a more aerial sort of neutral view, sure, find that very, very difficult to do because who is is calling for this ideological insertion into this event, this pastime, this cultural, celebration of togetherness it's certainly not any of the people watching that i had any contact with at all i i did 30 different sort of vox pop sort of interviews and i was yelling and chatting and just getting you know engaged just generally with people and i didn't see any call for these kinds of woke superficial and they're always seen to be very superficial, an overlay of, of pander. I don't know who is calling for that. I think this is happening at the very high executive levels of the NFL. I think that the corporations who have been buying ad space and who really you know, fund the whole thing, I think they were driving it for a while, but I think they are seeing it's not paying off that people are getting more and more resentful and turned off. But I like the idea that you, that when you were talking about Gus's challenge of, of listening and obviously expressing himself, wanting attention, needing attention from a, a very pragmatic survival point of view, but also really, really needing to pay attention to the world, to really get signals. You know, football is always about hearing the signals, you know, signals, a word you hear all the time. But we're all involved in, in taking signals, receiving signals, processing them. And I think that this major cultural event does put out signals for uh, major bodies like the NFL, for corporate advertisers, for politicians, and for the media to really get in line with, well, who wants superficial ideology that is intended, rhetorically intended to divide? Who wants that? Is anybody in the bar cheering for that? No. No one's cheering for that in the stadiums. Who are the people? Where is this secret group? What skybox are they in? Where are they hiding? And I think it, in this case, what a lot of people come to, uh, to conclude is, and not surprisingly, that these people aren't sports fans and they're not street level people. They're just right. not. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good note to close that on. I think that one of the things that unites our Twitter discussion and our Super Bowl discussion 
is this idea that there's this whole war going on that doesn't that normal people don't want to have anything to do with and it seems like in the case of the super bowl people who are in high positions of power who are status obsessed you know you have twitter which is just it's a status machine it doesn't bring anybody any money what it can potentially bring people is status and so a lot of these conversations tend to play out on it that force people to do nonsensical things and i think that the super bowl is a really good example as you elocuted well that it, it the sort of the bleak perspective on it is that it kind of doesn't matter if pe- if normal people don't like it it's happening anyway you see what i mean something that's so kind of unpopular but remember last time when we were talking about twitter when you said that it it's not bad enough to cause people to quit it's bad but it's never bad enough mm. that's kind of the way this woke shit works too because people who are just tuning into the game <clears throat> They might see what's going on with this splitting of the national anthem, so on and so forth. And they might think, huh, that's kind of stupid. I don't like that. But it's not enough to enrage them the way, say, gay people kissing (laughs) might enrage people Mm -hmm. for them to actually do anything about it. And that's the insidious ideological creep of this thing is that it moves along with people just accepting it enough to keep it going so i'm taking a hardline stance and i'm saying is anti-america well i love to i love the phrase ideological creep i think i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna use that that's a terrific thing and i think that is a very bold uh point of view you've advanced which i absolutely support i think i i, I applaud your your courage and articulation in putting that forward so clearly, because I think it really is um, defensible and sustainable in a way that the alternative perspective, I just don't see any grounds for at all. Um, One kind of connected thing, I, I think we just can't leave the whole Super Bowl topic for good without mentioning the halftime show and that was <laughs> which i saw a lot of i saw plenty of i saw a lot of rihanna people uh i guess it's rihanna technically Her yeah it's actually rihanna um i what i saw from most people having not watched it was that it was legendarily boring Nicely put. That would be, I think, a very fair and dignified. Yeah. <laughs> when you have, you know, you think about the past ones with Justin Timberlake exposing Janet Jackson's boob. Uh, there have been halftime shows that they're always supposed to be these big spectacles. And the consensus that I was hearing was that she just kind of stood, she just kind of was there. Lip synced in a very strange red uh, outfit that looked kind of like a homeless person's tent parka. If you can imagine Mm -hmm. a tent in a parka kind of not being able to decide Mm -hmm. what it was. And she had plastic, a plastic sort of bra over this suit. 
pregnant I, as well. Yes. She's pregnant. And yes. And, and the bump is, is showing. So that's in itself a little odd. I, I'm not used to uh, pregnant women sort of uh, snatching their crotch and then sniffing their hands. I think that's a little bit, I don't know. She felt the need to do that. All <laughs> her, uh, and this is <laughs> multiple levels. And that was really the only thing that was interesting because they were way above the turf that was so dangerous. It was like they all the entertainers wanted to get away from this grass before they would sink into it. But, you know, she has all of these male figures in white sort of polar explorer sort of suits, maybe something like the Squid Games. I don't know what the, the choreographer stage production people had in mind, but it was just incredibly ridiculous. But it did look like what you'd get if an AI designed like a dance program, you know, mm -hmm. it, it was lacking in anything. It had no real sexuality, even when mm -hmm. she did sniff her hands, uh, mm -hmm. which I don't know about that gesture. To me, but... that's just kind of gross. To me, that's not sexy. And I find Rihanna very sexy. I, I really, I genuinely enjoy her music, her album. Uh, I think it was 2016 now. It's been quite a while, but her album Anti uh, has pretty heavy rotation in my in my musical cycles. I think it's an extremely well-produced uh, pop R&B album. And I think that she has a kind of, her voice has a kind of sexiness to it, even if she's maybe not the best singer out there. Uh, so I would consider myself personally a big Rihanna fan, but rubbing your crotch and then smelling it is, <laughs> I can't think of any woman, try to imagine the sexiest woman you can. And then she rubs her crotch and then sniffs it. Does that do anything for you? Well, also, don't forget imagine a man grabbing his balls and doing that. Like, oh, I got some good. <laughs> well, when, when Michael Jackson used to do that, I, I, I just didn't feel comfortable. But, but imagine, because she is sexy. But imagine putting her in a, a, a costume that is exactly half parka, half tent. Yeah, it's very unsexy. It's yeah, it's not a sexy. Well, she's pregnant. I mean, to be fair, man. I mean, I guess she is pregnant, but. I mean, pregnant women can be sexy. I was attracted to my wife through her pregnancy. It doesn't mean that the sexuality dies when you get pregnant. Well, wouldn't you have flipped it around and said, "Look, this is a real test." I mean, uh, this this is a this is a, a big progressive test about well, you know, men can get pregnant too. So this is a, a very a statement of what women can do. So there's already a progressive woke issue. Don't there. you think maybe that's why they didn't do it? Maybe that's why they didn't do it. Didn't you know, do what? Make her sexy as a pregnant Oh, uh, well, I would have. Oh. You like see what I'm saying? Sabotage thing? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Oh, In intentionally oh, unsexy to make it, it to make everything sexless and gray and, and you know. Yes. No, no, I think you have had a major insight. That is the only way to interpret the costuming and choreography. Because if you looked at it from, from kind of an old school point of view of a hot pregnant woman, she'd be up there as a major star showing the world that pregnant women are hot. And can do, you know, she would have done some variation, maybe not the full, you know, agility thing, just like mm -hmm. the players weren't able to deal with the turf, she, but she would have adapted in some way. But no, that wasn't possible. 
but mm. that's a really interesting putting the belly on full display too in kind of a sexy bikini number would have been a real statement too yeah like, yeah like, and like, it could have well, we don't want that we don't want that it has to be understated i i think you should tweet about that and get that into <laughs> there is a lot to that i i think that, that at least subconsciously uh i mean i think freud would be right behind you on that i really do i think that oh. that's the only way to interpret how it went down is a is a is a maybe not a conscious suppression but a suppression nonetheless absolutely point i'm glad we 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 did need to mention that because that was such a cool insight so mm-hmm. well done. Mm-hmm. and I'm, mm-hmm. i think it's interesting that you're a fan so you mm-hmm. you would have felt that double if not 10 times mm-hmm. i think she's very talented i think that she uh I, I uh, eagerly anticipate her next album. Um, I'm kind of a musical uh, nomad. I, I I wouldn't consider myself an R&B fan. I'm not, uh, I know we're going to have a rap discussion, but post 2015, I haven't really found a lot in rap that I really like. Although sometimes I'm more of a guy who finds an album that really speaks to me. And then mm-hmm. that's what comes over me. My, Last year, my most played album on Spotify was by Orville Peck, who's a gay country singer. So it's it's like gay bluegrass country music, but oh, the songs just the songs just he's really enigmatic. He wears a a mask. He wears this mask with fringe on it, so you never see his face, and he's got this incredible Elvis like <laughs> voice. And he's oh, he's singing he's he's singing about you know lost love uh with dudes it's very explicitly gay music about you know like i I, you know i we some it's broke back mountain style music right (laughs) but i I just heard of this i must add it to my uh, playlist i think i think you're going to be blown away by how how good it is he he did a cover of uh you've lost that love and feeling and it just just kills it he just it's Peck. yeah 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 orville peck is amazing canadian too he's a canadian guy who's doing all this um so i'm very much a guy who when you say like what kind of music do you listen to i couldn't tell you oh i listen to metal or rap or country or you know whatever genre i an album will find me and sink its hooks in and that'll be that'll be my album. So it's I everything. Think that's from, a great way to be. That's a great yeah. way to be. I, I I feel that way very much. I mean, I think we all start our young listening life sort of a little bit genre aware. Uh, and there are certain you know certain directions that you're not going to go, and if you go down one path. But I think as you get older, and I think also that genres are kind of um collapsing and, and falling apart but i i appreciate that that recommendation i that's another good uh, i'm gonna have to check out orville peck but um mm-hmm. yeah if you haven't seen rihanna's super bowl halftime don't if you're a fan of hers i think it is not uh but you have given us all a new way to appreciate what why that went so strangely wrong mm-hmm. i like that I don't care if it's a conspiracy theory or not. I think it sounds. I don't either. I mean, my, my, my favorite part about the Super Bowl is that the Super Bowl is the Super Bowl for football fans, but it's also the Super Bowl 
for schizophrenics. So the schizos who I hire, uh, that I hire, the schizophrenics that I follow on social media have incredible gematrioladen theories about what's going on. And they, they analyze the halftime shows like they're the Zapruder film. And I just get a kick out of it. I love the Super Bowl. I love uh, presidential inaugurations. I love big events like the East Palestine oil spill because these schizophrenics come in and they're like, here's what it means. I've got a whole chart to explain. And I'm like, take me on that journey. I want to know what you're thinking. So I am completely schizopilled. I love this stuff. I wish you had a budget to hire your own team. I know I, I Freudian slipped out higher there. And I think that was, I was showing my hand. I, I want to have these people on staff to, to tell me what's go like what Illuminati conspiracy is being when the Grammys happened and they played uh, unholy and Sam Smith, who's just a nothing, he's a nothing pop star. He He doesn't, He's one of those people who the only real explanation for him being famous at all is that he made some kind of deal with the devil because he has nothing going for him at all. But he's singing a song called Unholy Dressed as the Devil, and the schizos are going nuts on Twitter talking about what all the symbolism means. I can't get enough of it. To me, it's better than reading novels. That's the one uh, dark subcorner of Twitter whether it's those people or QAnon, say what you will about those people and how uh, dangerous and racist they might be, but they're fun. <laughs> well, I, I'm thinking of them now just, you know, metaphorically as, as David's schizophrenics, this tribe <laughs> completely divergent thinkers that you can draw on. And in a sense, I think that's what, what, you know, good writers and artists are doing. They're listening to some of the real outlier pirate frequency, pirate radio station underground, you know, and, and we, we've often said we've lost the artistic underground. I think that there is some of the underground in that real grassroots underground sense that is available through social media, but you have to enjoy it. And I think that we do. And you, we go looking for these absolutely bizarre. Uh, it, it's its own Super Bowl that's happening all the time, isn't it? All the it? time, all the time. And it's so interesting because people will follow figures like Alex Jones, who is sort of an entry-level schizo. But if you really like the, 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 the kind of person I'm looking for, try to imagine if somebody like Henry Darger had a Twitter account, those yeah. are the people I'm looking for. The janitor who's got it all figured out. Yeah. And he's got, he's got 15,000 pages of schoolgirls being tortured and fighting monsters. And some of them have penises. Some of them have penises, right? The outsider artists, because social media exists naturally, they end up on social media. And those are the people who I follow. So the Super Bowl is big. The Grammys are big. The Oscars are big. Uh, any political event that happens is big. Everything is a psyop. Nothing's real. Everybody's a crisis actor. I love spending time in that reality tunnel because it's because I'm not schizophrenic. I'm able to appreciate it as an art form. 
which it is 100 percent oh you're obviously not for not not for them <laughs> in in their worlds this is all very real but for for me who's blessed to not be schizophrenic i'm able to look at all this and just be like this is so much better than hbo the infested festival isn't it yeah, absolutely absolutely I think that ties in beautifully to your imaginative challenge. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so the word that you said that tipped me off was influence and influencer, right? So uh, we have uh, Jiminy, Jiminy Geranium. Yep. Trying to, read my, trying to read my own writing here. He's religious and he's antisocial. I have him uh, falling in love with a woman named Virginia Sloth because I like the musicality of Jiminy Ooh. Geranium and Virginia Sloth. Uh, so he is, uh, he's got this goo that is able to uh, recreate his model of pig ear Georgia in a way that he can't necessarily do, but it also begins to influence him. So you're right in saying that this all flows together because what was on my mind during this imaginative challenge is an essay written by a man named Adam Lehrer uh, that I'll link to in the show notes about outsider artists and how, uh, you know, people like Henry Darger would have had a really hard time with things like social media because part of their mystique is tied into the fact that they are janitors who don't have an outlet, right? Now somebody would just put that on Instagram and they'd be another weirdo who nobody pays attention to instead of being able to create this whole world. So the word influencer was really important to me because uh, I have it as uh, Jiminy is very conflicted about being an influencer. He can't resist the pull of documenting some of these things on social media, Instagram, etc. But the art itself wants to be seen. So I really latched onto this idea that the goo is beginning to create its own ecosystem independently of him. Mm -hmm. But I thought it would be interesting. He's courting this woman, Virginia Sloth, and he's he has shown her his, his art, his, his goopy model of pig ear. And she thinks it's weird, but she finds him charming. We have a kind of Todd Solins style autistic romance going on. I love all it. of this. <laughs> and but what happens and where it starts to get dark is that the artwork itself wants to be seen. And unfortunately, Jiminy is not very socially adept. He's not good at using social media to get the art out there. So the art, because it has agency, begins to create disasters. And I'm thinking of this goop. I'm thinking of Jiminy sitting in his apartment and watching the goop kind of form into the different buildings and railway tracks and ditches and abandoned tenements and things like that. And suddenly he starts to see violence erupt in his artwork. He starts to see little green army men. And if I was making this as a film, they would be represented by little green army men in different positions around the city. My God. And as that's happening, as that's happening, like these, <laughs> like those, exactly like those. Yeah, 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 yeah. People at home can hear them. 
They're yeah, little yeah. army men. Oh, I'm loving it. As that's happening, uh, uh, real violence is beginning to break out in pig ear. There's a shooting at a Walmart, a train derailment, uh, balloons start to show up in the sky. A kind of microcosm of everything that's happening in America is happening in pig ear. It's got this this sense of it being kind of like Twin Peaks or Erie, Indiana or something like that, where, where all these strange things are happening. So I think my contention would be that we could develop this into a series where the main thrusts are we have this antisocial guy who's trying to romance this girl. Uh, so he's trying to deal with the real world. He's interacting with his art in this way. And the art could have a voice, a sentient voice. Uh, somebody with it, like somebody like Tommy Lee Jones narrating the voice oh, of this thing. Nice choice. And and as the series progresses, we have Jiminy trying to mitigate all of these circumstances that are being created by the artwork that wants to be seen. Oh, look, this this, I mean, you're you're always wonderfully surprising with your responses to these challenges and i i really uh i strive to give you some interesting uh meat to sink your teeth into but i i i really enjoyed several things about this i think your point and i i think that the essay that you mentioned is uh is crucial reading i i i hope you do you know include that link because uh, I'd like to check that. I think that really is an insightful idea that social media and this new world of, of interconnected, instantaneous response from the peanut gallery of the world, uh, how that would influence these kind of uh, very shy, essentially reclusive, hermetic genius artists often damaged in some way tremendously gifted and and, and truly visionary we've we've devoted uh, a few episodes to some of the the really greats uh the creating their own you know shrines and private worlds and you know mythologies on multiple levels using media in some very wonderfully repurposed inventive ways what they would be like more today in this world of, of social mediaization and instantaneous likes and feedback or dogpiling, you know, I don't think that, that many of these artists could stand yeah. uh, some of the, the reaction. I mean, well, think would... about what would have happened to Darger. I mean, pedophile would have been oh. the most obvious one. I mean, misogynist would have been thrown out, probably racist too. Uh, and stuff like that might be enough to make people, but I do wonder on the flip side of that, how many outsider artists we have working these days that, that have been canceled, that have been pushed underground and simply have not stopped creating what they create might still exist. We just don't know about it. Oh, I, I think it does still exist. And I, I think in, in some ways you and I are kind of, you know, we're somewhere on that spectrum. We are uh, on the spectrum for sure. I, yeah, I yeah, think absolutely. there are a lot of self-censored uh, artists who, I mean, you, we've talked about this, you, you brought it up of, of 
uh, a couple of episodes about people who have not put, you know, started on projects or not fall, you know, followed through on projects because they think it's out of fashion now. They think the ideological wave. Uh, and we're starting to ask more questions about who's behind that wave, how many people, what, where does that really come from? Uh, I, I think there is still a lot of vision, inspiration, and that hermetic, magical strangeness that's going on. But I think it's really under a lot of pressure. And I don't know if it will be discovered and appreciated and enshrined and to some extent that also commodified uh later um i think that 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 some of the certainly the more we go down the path of of measuring the art by the artist and the artist by anything that doesn't fit into the woke agenda uh i think there's really really some problems there's a beautiful um mm-hmm documentary film on Joseph Cornell, uh, you know, who's famous for his fabulous sort of mm-hmm. shadow boxes mm-hmm. and secret yeah. worlds. And also he was a filmmaker too. Very interesting. Uh, sort of kind of reminds me of the white rabbit in, uh, in Alice in Wonderland, but he lived a very quiet, humble life in Flushing, New York, looking after his uh, disabled, mentally disabled brother, uh, and never really had a proper adulthood of his own. Very strange figure. Worshipped movie starlets, uh, collected all this ephemera of them. But he had a lot of strange things going on in his actual life. And one, the artist, who's a, a female, I can't remember her name at the moment, she was saying that he wouldn't survive today, that his reputation would have been scrutinized, and that, that none of the... been an incel. yeah. Exactly. That that was the point. Yes, that's she did use that. Yes, that's how that would have been. And it's really horrific to think of that. It's just um, I mean, it's like. Uh, it's like thinking of Boo Radley that way, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it just it's not not a good way to think of it. But the other thing, I mean, I, I love the idea of the extensions that you were uh, suggesting. I love the romance. I love the name Virginia Slothing. That's wonderful. Uh, but the the notion, which I think is, I've, no, I haven't heard before, really, not as cleanly. In a, you're, you've got your real articulate hat on today. Uh, art with agency. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a beautiful phrase for an art, you know, a, a creative arts agency. But most people think of, you know, art is always being the object of, of you know, the direct object created by the subject of, of the artist. And there's, you know, a conflict. We've seen that in certain stories and films and books, you know, idea of, of the art in conflict. But not so much as the art having, not just taking on a life of its own, but having a real sense of agency. That's a very 2023 20, word, I think. In that yeah, movie. telos, having telos. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah, that's that's the, that's a whole huge discussion that might actually make a good episode. But I'm of the I'm becoming more and more as I go along of the mindset that the more that I turn off my critical faculties when I'm writing, uh, the more that I get rid of my expectations and allow, you know, what really opened this up for me was I read uh, Rick Rubin, the producer, came Mm -hmm. out with a book called The Creative Act that I read 
And there had been books on writing, on creativity that I have vibed with. Probably uh, Stephen Pressfield's War of Art was a big one for me. But Rick Rubin's The Creative Act feels like a book that was made for the type of creator that I am. And he very much proposes uh, the artist stepping back from their expectations and allowing the piece to do what the piece wants to do through your talent and through, you know, through the body that you have. And reading that has completely changed my, my life. I mean, my writing has increased by a magnitude of maybe three or four because I'm able to do this thing where I'm writing and I'm moving toward I me David is moving towards a goal and then I'm like okay wait a second hold on let's step back for a second what does it want to do and then I just keep going for another 10 pages right it's 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 crazy it's it's huge I would like to do an episode about that because I think a lot of our listeners are artists and, and certainly writers. I think that would be would speak to a lot of people. You know, it it it's what Keats was talking about with negative capability. And uh, I'm it's just th- this morning was thinking about that in terms of my blowgun target practice because I'm getting ready for my javelina hunt out in the desert with the bigger ones, but letting the dart be itself you know the fact mm-hmm. that you've done all this preparation which is what a lot of you know writers and artists do They're, we bring a lot to it have faith in that and let the art take its own form and i think there are many ways to think about that. i think that one thing we could get to is is looking at uh what musical improvisation actually means from a cognitive point of view there's a lot of so yeah yeah uh do you do you follow rick rubin's podcasts do you ever check out because he does some interesting interviews no no i i i take that back i have heard his podcast with pharrell the producer pharrell and i thought that was brilliant my buddy uh my buddy jay sent that to me and watching that got me to buy his book because I'm I'm a big Rick Rubin fan, and I didn't even realize it because I didn't pay attention to the liner notes. But he's had a hand in a lot of my favorite my favorite seminal albums. He's done everything from System of a Down to Johnny Cash to Slipknot to the Mars Volta to the Red Hot Chili Peppers to the BC. Yes. I mean, just just every right. like he's he's been everywhere, and he very clearly has a hand when it's a when it's a Rick Rubin produced album, I would say that they do feel different. They're not always that particular artist's best album, but I think Rick would agree with you. He'd say, no, it's not their best, but it's the album they needed to make at that point. Yeah, I really enjoy it. Check out, there. he has a whole thing you know, on, on YouTube that I think is really really uh enjoyable and the more you admire his work um the more you'll enjoy it but he's a very good listener interviewer Mm -hmm. of of his his co-hosts or featured guests um and that did trigger one other i wanted i we haven't done many shout outs like this but we do mention occasionally the the joe rogan show um 
And one in particular, I think, is is of lost explorer interest. It's with Randall Carson and Graham Hancock talking a good about one. lost yeah. technology. Yep. You know the one I mean? Yeah. I, I, I yeah. They've been that. on several times. They've been on four or five times. The most yeah. recent one was uh, about uh, uh, Graham's new Netflix show. And Randall doesn't talk a whole bunch, but if you're interested in that, Randall has his own podcast. Uh, okay. Randall Randall has a weekly show where he he's big into uh, his podcast is more focused on sacred geometry, which I'm very interested in. Have we did we had a mention of that at one point? That seemed way back. We might have. Back we might have. It might have been way back at the, at the start. Yeah, but I Randall's podcast is on. Uh, constant rotation in my in my podcatcher um because it's you know it's kind of used they're they're kind of they're long and unwieldy kind of like a lost explorers episode actually they're like three hours long and he goes into you know detail about different sacred ge- geometrical uh principles and things like that but he's he is uh somebody who's really worth listening to him and graham obviously hancock's a legend Right. But uh, Carlson's kind of like the unsung hero of that duo, I think. Yeah, interesting stuff. I'll have to check out more of it. But I, I love the uh, I love their I love that format of being able to wander around with people. I think that it uh, it is a lost explorer type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, are we got we tools and tips. Cool. Okay. Yeah, well, one of our, our big themes we said right from the start is is not always breaking down binaries, uh, huge conceptual category binaries, but getting more control over them, taking some, some agency, regaining some sovereignty, being able to pick them up, look at them, take them apart to see if they are, in fact, really are binaries. What do we mean by that? Do we mean just simply paired items? Do we mean complementary relationships that are fundamentally interdependent? If so, then are there, is it two sides of the same coin? All those kinds of philosophical sort of issues. I've been doing a very straightforward approach to another technique that we really recommend is just the basic inventory, just keeping a list. And I've got a little notebook where I just keep track of binaries that appear across my path. In major ones, time and space, life and death, being and nothingness, and I that got me reading again Sartre's book on being and nothingness, which I just love that title. It just makes me laugh. It makes me happy. It's like reading Schopenhauer, the the uh, the calm of non-existence. You know these big, big, weighty things. But light and dark, on and on and on. Well, if you do start inventorizing these binaries just casually over time and then go back to your notebook with a pen and start drawing a meander a meandering path through these and look for words and therefore concepts that are implicitly physical versus 
ones that really aren't. I mean, I think nothingness is an abstract idea. I don't really know how to visualize that in any way. But I think dark, although it can be abstract, has some physicality to it. I think death and life, I think we've got some, you know, physical material things to grab onto there. But notice, just do that and, and give yourself, you know, sometimes some pages to come back to and see how the visualization, the patterns form. And it's very interesting. Some concepts will drop away as simply being abstract in the sense of meaningless, you know, really not having much substance. Others, I assert, will take on a level of substance and reality and tangibility that you might not have thought without just letting it sit for a while, but having that visual meander path through them. So kind of a combination of two things that we've talked about. Inventory, brainstorming inventory at that level, and then visualization as the way of analyzing your brain depth coming back to that from a different point of view than concept and language and letting some of the intuition in your hand drawing with the pen or pencil, letting that inform the shape and then just sitting back and looking at that because I think some critical binaries will be reinforced as having legitimacy in the world and fundamental elemental to it. Others will drop away and there will be a dimensionality to some of those. And you'll think, all right. And I find that that has released some creative energy and given me some permissions and also some permissions to walk away from certain issues and to really re-engage with other things. And I think that's a good creative, you know, thing place to be. Absolutely. Simple technique there. Okay. And the tip. So that was that was conceptually simple as a tool. Inventory, brainstorm, and then a little bit of visualization to get some other angle on these huge philosophical divisions and frames. The tip is just a straight out, take the challenge. You know, we have all these cold water challenges and you know, <laughs> shave your genitals challenges and jump from tall buildings challenges. Well, we're still early enough in 2023 for me to issue this challenge to creative thinking, reading people. And we can include listening in this as well. This year, tackle one of those giant monoliths of culture that may scare you a little bit or maybe something you dismissed is just too intellectual, too highbrow, too complicated, over your head, you can't do it. And I'll give some examples. Finnegan's Wake. Exactly. That's that's number two on my list. I have Marcel <laughs> Proust in search of lost time. Ooh, a good Finnegan's one. Wake. Kant, the critique of pure reason. I read uh, that three years ago and I... And you know what? I was going to do a humble thing of be like, oh, it was kind of over my head. You know what's crazy about the critique of pure reason? I understood it. I, that is what I hope 
listeners will take up. Because if you do get past the brand reputation some of these things have, you will... That's actually Kant's most accessible work. And there's a lot in there that is incredibly clear. And I don't think he could have done a better job in certain ways. So I think some of it is just used in a completely connotative, uh, misleading sort of way and scares Mm -hmm. people off. I think Euclid, the elements of Euclid is another example. I think despite Newton's uh, sort of convoluted reputation, the Principia would be another example. But I think our point is clear, is take some monolithic, extremely famous, and to some extent ossified artifact of culture that has nonetheless been monstrously influential and experience it, reclaim some individual sovereignty and say, I can do it. Yeah, and I think people should should watch the days of our lives from beginning to end. <laughs> well, that's an alternative, uh, yes, approach. Well, that's another kind of challenge, but uh, I, that threw me. I'm not sure about that. That's uh, <laughs> that's more like an endurance sort of thing. It's an endurance test, yeah. Yeah, I love the idea of Proust, though. I've been meaning to get to Proust because I haven't read Proust. I've read uh, Finnegan's Wake and Ulysses, and uh, uh, I, I'm a big Joyce fan. I, I I think it's all great. I I'm not going to pretend that I understood what was happening with Finnegan's Wake, but I've listened to enough avant-garde music and black metal to know that you don't always need to know what's going on. You just kind of have to rock with it. And uh, when I was in my mid twenties, on drugs, by the way, I was on drugs at the time. I said I'm going to read this whole thing in a kind of speed-induced delirium. And I did, and my memory of it was that it was great. Can can I call to mind much of it? No, but I can't call much to mind from that period of my life. So, but Proust in particular, I I, I have been wanting to to get to in search of lost time. I've forgotten what a wonderful, wonderful writer, and the Scott Moncrief translation is is the way to go. But I'll just he's. It's some of the writing, in addition to the, the amazing neuro-linguistic programming and trance music across, you know, the whole enormous seven-volume project, um, some of the, just the writing is just, I just got to share a couple of lines. It's just, uh, where I, I wasn't prepared for, okay, here we go. Some of his insights are just simply, this is just like a throwaway character line. He had got himself up with a white beard and dragged his feet along the ground as though they were weighted with soles of lead so that he gave the impression of trying to impersonate one of the ages of man. Or another one. I had the impression that I was looking into a glass case in a museum of natural history, 
at an instructive example of a later phase in the life cycle of what had once been the swiftest and surest of predatory insects. I mean, he's just like, like Chris, what is going because those two lines that you read, I was closing my eyes and listening to them. And they're so evocative. Like they made me, they transported me to, you know, with the feet of lead, but they also imbued me with a kind of feeling. This is the magic of words. Because if you were to take any one of those words and even take chunks out of that sentence, you'd be like, okay, there's nothing especially flowery going. I'm reading Cormac McCarthy right now. And his prose is notorious for being, you know, this dense, complex thing. There's no, there's nothing really complex going on with those sentences, but they're so good and so evocative. What do you think's going on with those? Deep tissue. Yeah. Deep tissue, almost, you know, not even molecular, cellular down to almost a quantum level. And I think that not everyone, I do believe personally that, that everyone does respond if they give themselves a chance as they do with music. I think mm -hmm. it is acquired level of getting articulate enough as we were talking about the start with Gus finding words and finding some ability to manage things. I think people lack the vocabulary and the, the theatrical machinery to manage the spectacle of, of enjoyment. Mm -hmm. But it is very peculiar to me when people uh, say they enjoy reading and, and they're not enjoying the language, you know, the sheer language of it. And I think that once for reading people and certainly people who, who then take up and, and want to write themselves, there's some resonance and harmonic with words at a level that is very deep in the whole idea of consciousness. I've been seeing people uh, younger than me getting into Thomas Bernhard recently, huh. uh, who I love. I, I love the gargoyles. I love Thomas Bernhard's style, but also Thomas Hardy. People have been getting into Jude the Obscure. I've seen Jude the Obscure references pop up online, which is crazy to me because I love that book. It's one of my favorite books. Well, you're hard. you're an advocate for that book. And yeah. I wonder if you're not spreading some seeds, a kind of Johnny Appleseed sort of thing. I might. I might be, That's yeah, because it's in my sphere and I've seen it pop up. I've seen more Jude the Obscure stuff pop up. And I think I think everybody should read Jude the Obscure. I think I think it's extremely underrated in terms of what we consider classical literature you know i mean i do want to read proust but you have a lot of people reading proust and you know balzac and you know people like but thomas hardy thomas hardy was on to something oh he definitely was and i i can vouch for the fact you people can pick up the the entire collected novels mm -hmm. a lot of reading for 99 cents of kindle I mean, there's, it doesn't get any better than that. No one can say that these artists are incredibly accessible in that basic way, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's, well, you know, hopefully this is what will happen with the internet capability and social media is that we will get influenced 
in good ways, in that secret old fashioned record store owner way or the comic books. Mm -hmm. Is someone giving you a little inside word of mouth tip that not just hips you to a new product, but changes your life? You know, yeah. Jesus, yeah. I couldn't have gone on without knowing about this. Who who told me? Oh, well, it wasn't in any class or schoolroom. It was from, and not even a friend. It's some sort of, you know, figure in the dream who comes forward with this little insight that is uh, so important. I, I hope that's really true. But so we'll encourage people to take the challenge. Find take the challenge. Read something tough. Your, your peak you know, that you're mm -hmm. going to climb and it, uh, there'll be some delirious enjoyment that you won't have expected in, in the discovery and the achievement worth doing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Dream this, time. Dream this time. is a good sort of, uh, tie in with the, uh, the whole thing. It, uh, it went back to a setting that is an absolute recurring item in my life. Absolutely. From way, way back. It is a variation on the summer camp of, of childhood years, merging into the summer sort of art conference or writers or, you know, multimedia artists workshop event of adulthood. I've, I have had some real experiences at, uh, Idlewild in the mountains above Palm Springs, Breadloaf back in Vermont, Squaw Valley in California, the McDowell Colony in New Hampshire. So this comes up a lot, and there's always some sort of social conflict. I don't know how much of this has to do with uh, a projection of my feelings about myself in the art community. Some of it picks up on that, this dream, uh, a lot about what you and I often talk about a lot of weird social relationship issues kind of like um we've often talked to about how the hallucinogenic experience while it can open up big cosmic doors sometimes the the gift of the mushroom or the acid or whatever is a little revelation of mm -hmm. interpersonal mm -hmm. dynamics you know sometimes cool and sometimes not so cool it's those <laughs> vibrations but always helpful yes yes it, it's magic that you needed to be aware of even if you really don't want to it's not always fun it's no. not always fun and it, it's almost like you can't find the language for it in day-to-day -day interactions you needed the mushroom or the tab to open up other channels beyond sort of the language well, the focus uh, for this, I, I was in conflict with a couple, uh, mm -hmm. male-female couple, a romantic couple. And those never work at those kinds of, of events, those kinds of gatherings, because a lot of people are there to hook up with people, you know. Yeah, and right. A couple creates destabilization in a way that in the normal community sense, we think it's just the reverse that we like, you know, people to be coupled off, that they're the stability and all the single people, you know, freaking out are kind of entropy agents. Just the reverse of the, the closed world of the, the summer arts event. But I really don't like these people. I really don't like them 
at a at a deep instinctive level. The mm-hmm. woman is not necessarily uh, masculine in her aggression, but she is aggressive, and not quite passive aggressive either. She's not passive. She's really annoying and difficult. And the male is a classic snag, the sensitive new age guy. He's emblematic of a lot of people. I've had some real difficulty within the last four years. Yeah. (laughs) I, yes. Thank you. You broke it all down. That's, that's, that's my feeling about it. And I know that that's, uh, you know, contentious, but that that's exactly the issue. And we are in the dream. We are, uh, they are disassembling some uh, stuff of theirs and I'm assembling sort of my stuff. And both of us are working in multimedia and have some musical element. And for whatever reason, interesting uh, connection to the Orville Peck uh, mentioned, I throw in some the, the legendary Stardust Cowboy mm-hmm. fan of mine. And I, we were talking in the dream, we're talking about outsider artists. So all these things connect and strange variations on country music and how much more of an anarchist can, you know, could you have than the legendary Stardust Cowboy? Did he have any ability at all? Is he just a loon? And I'm very proud of the connection that he he wrote me a fan letter, which he really did in real life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They are completely dismissive of him on any basis of talent whatsoever and really mm-hmm. snarky and just in a way that's just so unsportsmanlike for fellow artists to be so i'm really starting to feel sick in my my gut at these at both of them but they don't leave it there with the dismissal of the legendary stardust cowboys as an artist they then claim he's a nazi and some sort of right Mm. case as well and i don't know about that in real life or in the dream but i just get so angry i stop assembling my Insulation, and I, I just get out of there for a while. And as often happens when I'm in this sort of summer camp, summer workshop thing, because it is a recurring, I have about 10 dreams like that a year set in one of these settings. They're kind of good for, for you know, a setup for lots of dramas, I think. Um, but I'm instantly out of there no middle ground, I'm gone, I'm somewhere completely different, and I'm walking with the Mastiff, so one Mm. of the two important guardian dog animal spirits in my life, really a powerful rejection of that couple and the human element, and because the Mastiff is is so big and ugly and so handsome and so powerful and so (laughs) And so, you know, so everything that they're not. And I'm in a city environment, which is a very interesting architectural blend of Melbourne and Seattle, two important cities in my life. And the focus shifts very heavily to architecture, which you and I have talked about. And we've talked about also just looking at architectural books, 
and how that kind of calms the mind and restructures things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's a beautiful sort of focus that I come to of uh, a late 19th, early 20th century, kind of Edwardian boathouse, brick, two-tone. There are a lot of examples of that in Australia. It's a very much part of the colonial thing also in south africa but there are some buildings like that in in seattle as well and it's this civic uh recreational center mm. that is beautiful to look at and is stable and yet not rigid and flexible and as i'm waking up out of the dream i'm thinking of I started off in this environment that should be promotive of the arts and yeah. nurturing and sustaining. It becomes very annoying and then hostile and then unacceptable on a social level in a really personal, visceral way for me. I escape from that completely breaking with that dog guardian uh, ferryman presence, you know, that that sort of ferryman figure of, of well a Hermes figure of guiding you to another world mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then psychopomp yeah exactly and then very much into a radically unsocial but very social in 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 a material sense of architecture that's really harmoniously working and embracing what really are my art and social values in a way that the so-called arts community uh, summer event was completely defeating. And you I used a, you you used a lot of interesting words there. Um, the I do feel like this is a pretty straightforward dream. Um, I think that it's funny how dreams can be so cinematically oriented to where you actually go from one motif to another. Yes. So so blatantly, where if you saw yes. it in a movie, you would think, okay, yeah, I get it. Right. Uh, right. So you literally have an artistic environment, which, by the way, you you didn't describe when you were describing the artistic environment with these people who are judgmental and shitty. I have no idea what that looks like. There's no okay. architecture to that. Okay, that's interesting. Okay. I, I I should apologize because this is such an ongoing motif. It varies from like California wine country to the Sierras, Squaw Valley up in the Tahoe area to Vermont. But it's always, it's semi-rural, bed and breakfasty, some sort of campus kind of layout, maybe mm -hmm. an old summer camp or, or a working summer okay. Okay. Uh, okay. A lake, ducks, you know. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. I get it. You yeah, know, I, I, it's funny because you describe it. And I, I could have described that for you if I, if I was to just imagine right. what this looked like. But it is what I'm talking about is that your descriptions of it went from the personal to the architectural. And this area that you prefer that is more artistically liberating and free is one that is devoid of interpersonal bullshit politics and is on this archetypal architectural grand scale, right? We're talking, 
We're talking buildings now, bro. We're talking about yes. spaces. We're talking about it's a mixture of Melbourne and Seattle and all these places that you've lived in. It's a it's a space that is formed by the concrete, not immortal, but closer to immortal than we are, spaces that we live in. And it's such a juxtaposition of this of the petty human and the long-lasting brick and mortar, right? Uh, and I feel like this might be your most on the nose lost explorer's dream, honestly. The way yeah, that it I moves. So I think that's yeah. a fair way to put it. I, yeah. I think I, I think it is exactly what you've run down. It's it's exactly accessible in that way. It's very simply decoded. I think you did a really brilliant job. Uh and it was it was interesting to wake up to something kind of as straightforward as that. But nonetheless, I I, I appreciate what you've just run down because your reflection of that helps uh, really um, put the finishing edge on that. You know that it I almost doesn't need words. You can just listen to that dream and kind of get it, kind of get what's going on you're you're being told that there's there's not much in these relationships with people who want to go down this increasingly base path and then i'm i'm almost picturing it as a <laughs> as you uh in a in a scenario where there's a tunnel and it enters out into maybe a small cave where a few naked debased decrepit people are picking at bones but out the other end you're out the cave and you're looking at an absolutely massive architectural marvel of human creation with no people around isn't that interesting right like one has people and one doesn't it is, is it is that that is the irony and that is the real intense counterpoint because in the architecture itself there is so much more of the civic gesture the goodwill the community and camaraderie of the super bowl that we've been talking about it's yep. it's it, it, it's it's fleshed into the brick it's yep. it's literally there fleshed into the brick is a great expression and i would i would use that visual metaphor if i had the talent to make these visual creations i would almost want to make a short film that was just that that was a guy standing at a a kind of womb like crossroads and i would want the cave to be very shallow and the people to be really kind of disgusting and you know saggy tits and saggy asses and drooling and yellow teeth and they're <laughs> sort of picking at bones and then he turns and I would want the scope of it to just open up so that you feel that sublime overwhelming feeling of massive semi-alien architecture and just be like which one feels more human to you because to me it's the one without the humans yeah well that <laughs> is that is precisely the irony of it. That and that is exactly what really struck me. I think mm -hmm. that's very well said. That's that's exactly what's going on, and it it it, it makes me think because we have mentioned architecture uh, from time to time. We we both respond to it. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I mean, I, I'm a failed architect. I wanted desperate. I was always drawing stuff as I just didn't have any real. I had a great love for it, but no aptitude. I think it'd be it'd be interesting um, to devote an episode to architecture. Uh, we can always get visual reference, you know, in the in the show notes for for uh, listeners to follow along. But I think the way you and I talked about it, you almost it, it would be a kind of an interesting way to deal with with the very visual. Yeah. world architecture yeah i would be interested to talk about architecture i would like to do a whole series on bachelard's poetics of space yeah and, and use a lot of a lot of different things to to kind of talk about that because i mean we kind of got into that with the robert Irwin stuff you know i mean that was our our course it was great our book club was great like we had so many cool discussions about that and the poetics of space and the idea of light, uh, I think, could be magnified out with also discussions of, you know, psychogeographical architectural spaces. It's one of the most fascinating things to me. I, I haven't quite figured out how to integrate it into my larger artistic project, but it's a it's a pet fascination of mine, architecture is. I, I think we should pursue this, and uh, I've got we're coming closer to my big solo um, exhibition in Seattle, mm-hmm. Center on Contemporary Art, uh, which is called Ghostscapes, and mm-hmm. it's all mm-hmm. about psychogeography, uh, which is a huge, you know, there are so many different ways to approach that, and, and it's 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 nothing that I'm you know doing in isolation. There, we've talked about some artists that we really really are passionate about who really fit into that it it is a genre uh and we also did you know i think a really interesting series on michael heiser's city um so i yeah i I like this idea of of of, and the poetics of space i mean i think some of our listeners would be familiar with that i just reread that only about four or five months ago and that remains i think one of the most beautiful gem gemstones of of critical analysis philosophy meditative it's just beautiful to read from every point of view it's like music yeah yeah my penguin copy is all marked up i'd have to find it but yeah i have that penguin does such a good job and you almost don't want to admit that they do such a good job because it's so streamlined but every every edition like that they really figured something out with that design with the black half of the half of the cover being black and then the other half being kind of an, a compelling art piece they did it with Deleuze and Guattari uh you know the poetics of space is just it's one of my favorite books we i think now we have to talk about the poetics of space yeah i i'd love to do that i've got i'm looking at the, the note i've got a separate notebook just on that i mean i think it's uh I I think we must. It's um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. some beautiful, beautiful ideas. Um, he, he's just such a, a great writer, and I think yeah. always thinking in thinking in spatial terms. That yeah. uh, I mean, he invented the term topo analysis, the systematic psychological study of our intimate lives. Have you read uh, In Praise of Shadows by, uh, who wrote that? Uh, Junichiro Tadazaki. 
I haven't. I, I feel like I have, but Ooh, I have It's a very slim volume. You should I can I can send you a PDF if you want, but if you want to buy it, it's I, I have the physical as well. It's uh I really when I read that book, I thought, oh my god, there's a way forward. Because uh, uh Tanizaki was a novelist in the 1950s in Japan. And in the kind of twilight years of his life, he wrote this book about Japanese architecture and shadows and aesthetics. And there are some great passages about, you know, he's trying to figure out how to put a wood burning stove into a traditional Japanese home. And he goes on a extended rant about the beauty of uh, Buddhist temple toilets and how you can just see out a little bit. And when it's raining outside, it's the, it's this, just this perfect uh, sensory experience or whatever. Uh, and also he gets into some really, you know, he's a, he's an 80 something year old man in 1973 or so when he wrote this book and he's getting into some really like sensitive topics about like men and women and, you know, like some stuff that really wouldn't fly in today's culture. So we could talk about that book too. Uh, I love, I love what you said that when you read that, you felt that there is a way forward. Isn't mm-hmm. that what we want people to, that's, yeah. that's the message. A book, a book from the, a book from the early 1970s. So almost 50 years ago now is like, is finding me. Uh, uh, I had Kelby read it too. We talked about it on Agitator because it's a Japanese guy, but Kelby and I's discussions, much more dig jokes. It's it's different from the way that you and I talk. I'd be interested to talk to you about In Praise of Shadows. And, I, and so, I will, um, I've written that down. I will return uh, the favor and give you a recommendation, a musical recommendation, it, which strangely, okay. uh, I think you'll understand what why it, I'm uh, connecting it. Pauline Oliveros, Pauline mm, Oliveros, mm-hmm. deep listening would be one. You, you, she's. Yeah, I'm familiar with Pauline Oliveros. Yeah, yeah, I, I think she's really an interesting fit with that idea. Um, there are a lot of of there is a world of of artistry, musicians. Uh, people on the edge of genres, DJ Spooky, a lot of mingling of architecture, theory, music, new cognition ideas. That's that's where so much, ex- that's where the way forward is. I love that expression. That's great. There is a way forward. That's what I want to feel. That's what I want. I, I would love it if someone read something of mine or listened to something of mine and thought that's, yeah. That's the way forward. All right, we'll cut it there. Excellent.